Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. If you have been with us, we've been in a series called Tracing the Root. This is a standalone sermon, as Rick had mentioned. Um, and so we're actually going to, to sort of branch off of that Tracing the Root, because um, that's what I've been thinking about. And so um, as we're looking at the scriptures today, I would say recall some of those conversations you've had in your GC groups, the things that God has sort of conjured in you as we've been going through Tracing the Root, which is getting at those core idols that we all struggle with, which is power, approval, control, comfort, or pleasure. Um, And with that, I think we'll get into it. G.K. Chesterton, who's an author that I like, (laughs) He wrote this in the opening line of an essay entitled, If I Only Had One Sermon to Preach. He said this, If I had only one sermon to preach, it would be a sermon against pride. He went on to conclude in his final sentence, If I had only one sermon to preach, I should feel especially confident that I should not be asked to preach again. Pride I have found for me to be a deep-seated sin that I protect fiercely. Um, and I, it, it kind of, to me, is the summation of all the things we've been talking about in the Tracing the Root series. It's the, it's the core summation of things that, that pushes me away from God and away from others and into myself. Uh, I have found that I struggle with all of with all of the Tracing the Root idols, and I think for me as I thought about them and sort of just kind of got lost in them, I was like, man, um, you know, what do, what do I do? Like, how, how do I move forward? And, and for me, I, I know that I struggle with pride, and I think pride just sort of summed all those things up and sort of put them in one thing that I just said, wow, I'm really me-focused, and I need to figure out how to not be me-focused. And so... Today, I'm not fearful that I'm not going to be asked to preach again, um, but I do believe that his point remains evident today, is that pride itself is a dependency that we all hold really close and we all hold really fiercely. And when it is unearthed, it's unsettling to us. So if you recall uh, a scene from a movie with Ben Stiller, hilarious scene. Uh, He's on a plane and he's holding his carry-on bag and he doesn't want to give it back to the stewardess. So this is what he says. The only way that I would ever let go of my bag would be if you came over here right now and tried to pry it from my dead, lifeless fingers, okay? If you can get it from my kung fu grip, then you can come and have it, okay? Otherwise, step off. That's how I feel about my pride. I, th- I think we all do, right? It's funny, uh, that scene is just hilarious to me. But when I, If we just replaced bag with pride, if I'm being honest with myself, that's the way I hold it. And that's the way I come across. It's almost comical. So this morning, our our destination is not going to be pride itself, but but I think it will be a bit of our journey as we talk through the scriptures. And I hope for you, as I do for myself, that, that our soul's deepest longing would be the truth. And that that truth would ever so graciously usher our souls into a place of calm, a place of quiet, and a place of glorious hope. 
So if you would, uh, open God's word with me this morning into the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 131. While you're turning there, if you do not own a Bible, um, the Bible you're holding in your hand that was on the seat next to you uh, is yours to have and and take and read uh, if you would like to. So Psalm 131, a psalm of David. Let's read it together. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the man that you created, David. Thank you for the gift of his words um, through the inspiration of your spirit to us this morning. God, I pray that your, your spirit would come inside of each one of us and would empower us uh, to understand the scriptures that would come and illuminate the things that are not right within us. God, and that that spirit would illuminate Jesus in our souls this morning, that we might be able to, to see our sin and then move forward. God, thank you for your word. It is a blessing to us. In your name, amen. So the Psalms are a beautiful gift from God. They invite us kind of into a a deep imaginative sort of reflection of life, which I think is helpful. They offer imagery. They, they vividly capture the emotion of the human experience. Um, they mention all kinds of grief and, and trials and wickedness, but at the same time, they also look towards the love of God and, and hope, and they praise him. And I think when our imaginations are captured by the Psalms, as they hopefully are with this one, that the word of God communicates these deep and exacting truths into our lives connects our souls in a way, I think, to God's word. It's like hearing a, a beautiful piece of music played by the symphony or, or maybe seeing the, the folds of the earth from a really high peak or, or maybe, uh, as we're blessed to have even today, to be able to hold the weight of a new infant in your arms. There's, there's something about those moments and those experiences that just kind of like give a gravity to life and understanding to it. I think that's what the Psalms do. And so as we see the imagery and, and work through that, Keep that in, in mind. Our psalm this morning invites us into a meditation of a simple image. It's of a child being weaned. And this is the image I believe will help us with our deep-seated pride, something that sums up all of these core issues we've been talking about. And I hope this, and listen closely to this, I hope it will give us boldness to look at it, that is our pride, to see it for what it is, to express it and confess it, all in the hope that the Lord does indeed provide. So fear not, we're not just going to be wading through this um, worrisome bit of pride with no hope. So let's get into it a bit. Where, where are we going? So I think what we're going to look at today, um, I can give you three things here. Well, I'll sum it up in this way, and this might be helpful to remember. A calm spirit understands the will of the Father. A calm spirit understands the will of the Father. So here's the three, three points we're going to walk through. What does one with a calm spirit do and not do? So that would be kind of a brief discussion on, on pride. Then we're going to look at how does one get a calm spirit? 
So we're going to kind of discuss what, what is weaning? What is that? And what does it look like? What does it involve? And number three, how does one live with a calm spirit? Which would be a discussion on repentance and hope. So, number one, what does, a, what does one with a calm spirit do and not do? So if we read from the scriptures, it says, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. When we raise our heart, it belittles others. So what, what, does, a, what does one with a calm spirit do? It considers others above ourselves. The second line, my eyes are not raised too high. What does one with a calm spirit do? We should consider ourselves with a truthful and honest gaze. We should not presume to look up when indeed we're not worthy. And lastly, what we see there, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What does one do with a calm spirit? Or, um, they, they pursue what God has laid before them and nothing beyond that. So I think something that's helpful uh, here is to look at the truth that's being presented kind of from the opposite side. And, and I'm indebted here to uh, Dr. David Pallison. He, he has done this practice of what he calls the anti-psalm. So he actually takes a psalm and he writes it from the opposite perspective, but saying the same truth. And I think it's, it's helpful here. So I'll read his version of Psalm 131 of these first two verses. I think it will help us. It says, Self, my heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself. And my eyes are haughty. I look down on other people, and I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. Do you identify with that? I, I, I know that I do. So what are some indicators that you might actually struggle with these things? I think if you're just really good at finding fault in other people, you might struggle with pride. Or if you're just really superficial with everybody, you don't actually let them into what's going on, um, I struggle with that dearly. You might struggle with pride. If you just have a harsh spirit towards other people, you might struggle with pride, which would be a spirit that, that sort of puts down others and always looks at all these other people's flaws. You might struggle with pride. If you have a desperation for attention, I think you might struggle with pride. Uh, if you just neglect others, or you're defensive about everything, you might struggle with pride. So when our heart is raised, we elevate it, we elevate our character above everyone else's. We look down on them and we belittle them as less than. And then we also presume that we're worthy and that our standard is indeed the best. There's a, a good definition I think sums this up well, uh, also by Chesterton. He says this, pride consists in a man making his personality the only test instead of making the truth a test. It is not pride to wish to do well or even to look well, according to a real test. It is pride to think that, things look, think that a thing looks ill because it does not look like something characteristic of oneself. So if we make ourselves the measuring stick of everybody else and everything else, we've got a serious pride issue. Because uh, I think if we took an honest look at ourselves and let the truth sink in, we're not that great. We're not, we're not that holy. We're not that perfect. And I don't think we need to 
to sort of pour on this point. I think, I think we can all hopefully identify with some of that. So are you always testing others in situations according to yourself, your own personality, your own standard? And I think from, uh, just as an example from God's word, it's so clear here out of the book of Luke when we look at the Pharisee, if you remember, and the tax collector coming to pray. I'll read uh, out of Luke 18 here. It says this, uh, as they both came to pray. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Do you you identify with that a little bit? I know that I do. I think if I'm being honest. And I think we treat God that way sometimes too. God, I'm not that bad. Like, you know, the things that I do are, are, like I actually do some good stuff. Um, But look at these other people. Look at what they're doing. I think that's just a refusal to not recognize the pride in ourselves. And lastly, just looking at these great and marvelous things, I've not considered um, uh, these things that are too great and too marvelous for me. I think this is just a talk about ambition. So the pursuit of being well-known and successful, making a name for yourself, achieving the remarkable, being praised for your work and efforts, um, being fierce and tenacious, striving for achievement, I think these are things that our culture presents and they're like, yes, this is what you are to do. You need to strive, you need to achieve, you need to work hard, you need to dig in and grind it out and then you'll be successful and then you will arrive. That is not what a person with a calm spirit does. Just another biblical example, King Nebuchadnezzar, king of, the, uh, of Babylon, he says this, in the face of God, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Is that not just, just the like quintessential example of, I think, what we do all the time? Look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I've achieved. Look at my accolades. Look at my titles. So, Let's look, at, let's look again at the flip side. What does a person with a calm spirit do? I think Philippians makes this so clear. This is Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a hard word for me this morning. But I think it's, I think it's the truth. Even Paul says, look at uh, later in Philippians, he says, look at all the things I've done. I am the Hebrew of Hebrews. I, I am the ultimate Pharisee. I know the law backwards and forwards. I have done all of these things, but guess what Paul said? I count it all as a loss for the sake of Christ. So we need to count others above ourselves and see the pridefulness of our own ways and recognize that Christ is the only way out of that. So, Let's move along. How does one get a calm spirit? So if a calm spirit, I mean, that seems really great, right? When would you agree? A calm spirit? It's a good thing. I think my spirit is unsettled. I can tell you all weekend my spirit was unsettled. Why? Because I'm here right now. Okay? Unsettled, unsettled, unsettled. And I'm grateful. This is just an aside. I'm grateful for the music this morning. Thanks, Caleb and, and team. Man, those lyrics spoke to me. They spoke to me. And I hope, like, just like this song here, that, that music and these psalms um, 
that they speak to you of God's goodness and his control over everything. So how does one get a calm spirit? Um, It simply says in the word here that it's by being weaned. And David said that he is weaned. So what does that mean? So to be weaned is, is, this is sort of a simple definition. It doesn't quite capture it all, I don't think, but to learn to manage without something on which someone has become excessively dependent. To learn to manage without something on which someone has become excessively dependent. So how can this be so that David is saying this? This is like remarkable. How is it possible that there's no noise, no worries, no disturbance of any kind? It's serene, calm, quiet, content. How can it be that they have no anxieties, no regrets, no stress, no crisis? Nothing is corroding their spirits. Nothing is eating away at their identity. How can they not have a single sense of dissatisfaction and frustration? I have that, like, I feel like I have that all the time, every day. So how can this person even say this? that they are weaned, that they, are, they have been completely uh, enabled to live without these things on which we are excessively dependent. So let's look at the process to get there. And I think we need to look at the person of David and who he is to kind of get an understanding of where he's coming from as a writer. So here's a, here's a brief summary. David is this. He, he's the youngest of eight brothers, not calm. He's a lowly shepherd and a fierce protector of his flock that would be attacked by fierce animals. Not calm. A man of striking good looks as well as a skilled musician and poet. Might be a little calming here and there. A loyal friend and a faithful subject even while a fugitive. Definitely not calm. He's an adulterer and he's a murderer by proxy. I would say that's probably not calm. And perhaps most famously, He's a man after God's own heart. Huh. That's interesting. Like, how, do you, how, how does that then add up with all those other things that we just read? So I, I think that this man, uh, and not to mention he's the king of Israel, I, I think he's achieved a lot. I think he has a lot. He has a lot of abilities. So I think this man has something to communicate with us on the matter of pride, ambitions, and the pursuits of a life of quiet and calm soul. So I think we need to remember, most importantly, that David's life, the, um, the truth about him that sort of pervaded everything else was that he was anointed and loved by God. And David knew God and submitted his life to God. And he walked with God. So let's get back to weaning. What is, what is weaning, right? It's this, it's this pulling away of something we're dependent on. And then what is it by extension? it is actually an attachment to something else. So we're not talking about just leaving something behind as a child leaves its mother's milk, right? It's actually moving on to another food source. It's moving on to something else that you're eating. And so I think this is an important thing uh, to keep in mind. And I was thinking about this as we look at our uh, Tracing the Root series of Power, Approval, Control, Comfort. So think about it this way. Uh, So we, we must not take our dependence upon having power and influence over others in situations, and then exchange it for, well, just simple approval of others, thinking that, well, if I can't exact power with people, at least they can see me and recognize me as good. And we must then not also cease in caring what others think about us, striving for their approval, and then just pursue, well, if I can't control their approval of me, at least I can just control the situation. I can control what's going on. So I'm just going to strive for 
control. But we also must not exchange just our lust for control in situations for the falsehood of actually relinquishing that control, which may be only to resign to a pursuit of our own independent comfort. So we just say, well, forget everybody else. I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to enjoy life and I'm going to enjoy the pleasure of it. And I think it goes back around. All, all these are interrelated. They just come back around on one another. You can twist that any which way you want. But if we're detaching ourselves from one thing and then moving to another thing that's just equally as bad but in a different flavor, I don't think that's, that's going to work for us. So what do we attach ourselves to? That's the question. We're being weaned from something to, to, to what? So what should we attach ourselves to? What does our culture say? How would our culture answer that question? Uh, I just threw down a couple of ideas. I think on one hand, our culture might tell us to just escape. They say, well, yeah, if, if um, all these things are going on, well, just get away, take a vacation. You just need a chance, you just need a chance uh, by yourself. Maybe start saying no to more things to, ha- to have some time. Or, you know, maybe just uh, escape mentally, like practice, start practicing meditation, clear, clear your mind, and it will be calm. I don't know if that works. Or, or on the other hand, the, the culture might tell you to just, well, join in. You know what? Having a calm spirit's overrated anyways. Dig in, grind it out, put in your time. You'll get there eventually. The goal isn't to be calm anyhow. It's just to jump in the river of crazy pursuits and ambitions. In fact, I was just actually looking at the Eugene Weekly this morning. And it had uh, on the cover just about um, how weed is living its best life right now and how it is basically the cure-all to everything. It says this, weed has become the magical leaf and for some the medical benefits have become the new apple a day keeps the doctor away. I think that's just run, I I don't mean to like pick on that. I, I just think that that's one example of how we go to things and think, yes, this is it. If I can just do this thing or have this thing, this other thing, I'll be calm. I'll finally be able to settle down. My anxiety will decrease. Things will decrease. I'll be okay. I would argue that that's just detaching ourselves from one thing and moving on to another thing, and we're still stuck in the same situation where I'm talking like I am right now, really crazy and fast, and I just like, I'm out of control, right? I don't know if you end up there, but inside I'm doing this all the time. It's like, ah. So I don't believe a calm spirit comes through any of these practices. Psalm 131 does not depict a quiet soul as a joyful detachment or a joyously endless pursuit. It's not an easygoing attitude or a life of low expectations. It's not a retreat from life's troubles and woes. It's not a retirement to an easy life of no worry. It's not a pleasant fatigue after a hard day's work. It's not the quieting of the noise that maybe a glass of wine brings in the evening. So if culture doesn't have it right in these ways, what is God's words calling us to? And I think John 4.34 says it well. Jesus says here to his disciples, Jesus is working, and his disciples have been away, and they come back, and they're kind of like, Jesus, have you not eaten yet? And he says this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So when we are weaned from our mother's milk or on those things on which we are just obsessively dependent, what do we run to? The food that comes from the will of the Father. 
So here's a few points on weaning. And I hope that this is encouraging to you. Weaning is a process that happens through an intentional relationship. It doesn't just happen. Like a, a mother or, or parents, you, you are choosing to do that and you are taking steps to go about that process. And it doesn't happen like this, does it? I'm not a parent, but, but I hope parents are agreeing with that. It doesn't just go, oh yeah, we're all good, we've moved on. It takes time. It takes time and it takes intent. It does not happen in an instant and it does not happen alone. A child must learn it and be discipled in it. Friends, we are that child. We need to learn it. And it's going to take time and we need to be discipled in it. And that happens through what? Through relationship. We need God and we need one another. Uh, secondly, weaning is upsetting and fretful. It's hard. If you put yourself in, the, in that child, it's like, I don't want to leave that. But that's so comfortable and that's so good and I like it and I'm used to it. But I think the parent knows that what's best for them. So I think we should take solace in the fact that, hey, it takes other people, it takes time, I need to learn it. And it's hard and it's, not, and it's frustrating. So as we're going through this and looking at our root idols, we're looking at pride, we're saying, hey, this is an issue, this is reality, this is true for me, but it's going to take time to get there. And guess what? I need other people. And most of all, I need the Word of God. I need to know the will of the Father for me. So, how does one then live with a calm spirit? And th this is going to get us like, how, how, do we, how do we approach this hard, fretful, arduous process? A weaned and calm spirit is this, is a repentant spirit. This is so beautifully portrayed in Second Samuel. David has basically spent, you know, he's already gone through most of his life. He's had innumerable achievements. He's done all of these things. And then as king, he goes and, and he, he sees Bathsheba, says, I want to take her as one of my other wives. He had many. And so what does he do? He hatches a plan and sends Uriah, her husband, to the front lines, ends up getting him killed so that he can have her. I think we would all agree it's a grievous evil. That, that, that is an awful sin. So how can this man have a calm spirit? And the Lord speaks to the prophet Nathan and has Nathan tell David a story. He says, what would you do with this man in the story? And David basically says, I'd kill him because that's what's due him. And Nathan said, you are that man. I feel like Nathan's pointing the finger at me. You are that man. You are that man that does that. You are that man that sins against the Lord time and time and time again. You are that man. And so what does David respond with? And listen closely here. It's simple words, but I want, I want you to have it sink in. David says this in response, I have sinned against the Lord. And I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but the Lord responds with this, I have put away your sin. There's <sighs> a sense of like hope here. David comes forth and says, I accept the judgment that you have put upon me, which is death, which is the removal of everything that I have achieved, even through your help and your power. But I accept it. And because he respond in true, responded in true repentance, 
the Lord responds back to him and says, I have put away your sin. Immediately he says that. And this was much unlike his predecessor, Saul, when he um, did not follow the Lord and what he had commanded. And the Lord came back to him and asked him, like, hey, what's up? How come you didn't do what I said? And he goes, well, I did what you said. Um, I did this thing, and I brought this king back. And I know you said to kill him, but I brought him back alive. But he's going to be put to, to, to justice anyways. It was these other people who who uh, kept the animals alive and did these other things against your word. Does that sound like true repentance? It's, it's more of just placing the blame somewhere else. So I think part of repentance we need to learn this morning, we see the truth in us and we accept it for what it is and we accept the consequences of it and we say, I'm unworthy. We don't put that on other people. We don't set our own standards and then belittle others. One other thing to be wary of, I think, here is we have this phrase in our culture today which drives me bonkers. (laughs) It's easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission. Does that seem like something that comes from God's word to you? I think this is kind of almost the, the ultimate or one of the ultimate displays of, of pride. Should we continue in our sin that grace should just abound? No, no, no. Paul would say no, no, we should not. He says this in Romans, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? His kindness is not a gift to you uh, to just go do whatever you want and say, well, I'll just ask for forgiveness later. Christ has got it. God's got it. It's good. I don't think that that's the way that it works. So where do we turn? Where do we, where do we go? I think we go to God's word. Please be in God's word. How do you know the will of a father? You feast on the will of the Lord, which is right here. If you don't have one, take one of them home with you. This is a gift to you, not from us, but from the Lord. If you want to have a calm spirit, understand this and accept it as truth, which will reveal some nasty things and it will be difficult for you. But in the end, it's going to be for, for your good and for a calm spirit within you. Let, let's look at Jesus for a moment. We're getting close to finishing here. Let's look at Jesus for a moment. How does he display this to us? Because I think when we're looking at David here, we're seeing David as this person who's like, wow, he's this man, he's, he's done a lot, he's pretty good. Um, he's also done some really awful things, but he has a calm spirit. I think we're also intended to look to a more perfect David or the son of David, as Matthew calls him in his gospel, who is Jesus. And I think this is actually a glimpse into Jesus' mind as he's living life, this psalm for us. Let's think, think this through. So Jesus, uh, I think we would all say, was perfectly content in the will of the Father. But let's look what Jesus went through. I think just, I think a nice way to do this is go through those uh, four um, idols. So Jesus, uh, early on, was taken out by the Holy Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness. And Satan came to them and challenged him after 40 days of fasting to say, why don't you turn this stone into some bread and you can eat? And Jesus quoted that famous line, quoted from Deuteronomy, man does not live on bread alone, but on from every word of God's mouth. 
He relinquished his power in that moment to actually do that work and said, it is not my will, but the Father's will in this situation. How about in the garden before he is going to the cross, he's praying at the Mount of Olives that his task before him would pass by him. And how does he respond to the Father in prayer? He relinquishes all of his control and he says, not my will, Father, but your will be done. How about on the cross? He endured the painful agony, the the excruciating pain of the cross for the sins of the world and gave up all comfort and all pleasure in that moment. And in his death, what did he experience? Well, not only the physical death, but he experienced the disapproval of the Father in that moment. He experienced the Father's wrath. He gave that up so that we then could go and have a life and understand the Father's will. So when we hear of David letting us into his thoughts in this psalm, I think we are also to see more perfectly the thoughts of Christ. So lastly, in closing here, the last, the last line of the verse, I think is a bit, can be a bit abrupt. I'll read it again here. So we're talking about... Uh, are not being prideful, and then we have this calm spirit, and then verse three, it says, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It's kind of like, what? Where did that come from? So think about it this way. David as a king, in this sense, is so connected with his kingdom, his nation, the nation of Israel, that he actually connects their hope and their contentment to his own. He's recognizing what it takes to have a calm spirit through this process, and saying, Israel, oh Israel, you, are, you, you need to be as me. Hope in the Lord from now forever. Think about it. David is king and people are looking to him to succeed in everything in life. And what does David say? Quit looking at me. He's exemplifying what he just stated. Quit looking at me for your ambition. Quit looking at me for these things. Focus on the Lord. Look to the Lord. Hope in him forevermore. I think finally just uh, look at Jesus again because there's hope in this gospel that, that, that when, we, when we see our sin, we see it for what it is. We recognize it. We confess it in true repentance. We look to Jesus because he has indeed taken the punishment that is due us as it was due David and said, I have put your sins away. I put them away. Can you, can, you, can you feel the calm? I have put those away. I have set those aside. You don't, need to, you don't need to worry. But in that, there's commotion in life. There's things going on. It's not that, we just, not that we're just pulled out of society like we're going to be talking about. We're living in it, and there's all kinds of chaos going on. So let's look at Jesus. This is some excerpts from Isaiah 53, which is depicting uh, and, and looking forward to Jesus' death. So he says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, his wounds, we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. 
Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, and he accepted it. And I think he was at peace. I mean, I think there's a sense where we see the, almost the anxiety of Jesus, if I can say that, where he's like, he's feeling the tension of the moment. But I think ultimately he was at peace knowing that what he was doing and going through was the will of the Father. So take heart, friends. It's a process. It takes time. It takes repentance. But I think as we look to Jesus, we have hope and hope in him for that calm. So let us put our hope in the Lord and his good and pleasing and perfect will. Let us put our hope in the Lord for it is through his perfect will that the Son was turned over to death, that we might repent unto grace through faith in this awesome work, that we might be calm in spirit knowing that he can promise his Son and be faithful to give him. How much more so will he be faithful to give what he has promised us? So look to the Lord, look to Christ both now and forevermore in hope. And I would tell you today, if I had one sermon to preach, I believe it would be on repentance. For I know no other way to experience the love of Christ and be calm and quiet.